This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 457th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an executive who became the first woman of color to ever run a Hollywood studio when she was appointed president of Universal Television in August of 2011, a role she held until May of 2016. She subsequently moved over to and is now the head of global television at Netflix, the streaming service which is currently available in more than 190 countries, boasts 221 million subscribers worldwide, and heads into the 74th Emmy Awards with 105 nominations, the most of any content provider, save for HBO slash HBO Max. Its most recognized program this year with 14 nominations is the Korean dramatic thriller Squid Game, which has already made history by becoming the first show not in the English language to ever land an Emmy nomination for Best Series, in its case, Best Drama Series, on the heels of becoming the most-watched show in the history of Netflix. And it is at the streamer in no small part because of the vision of this British-born woman of Indian descent, who I might add was recently named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World for 2022. Bella Baharia. Over the course of our conversation, the 51-year-old and I discussed her early years, which were split between England, Zambia, and the U.S., and how television helped her to learn an American accent and American culture, how she eventually broke into the business and climbed the ranks in Hollywood at a time when virtually no other brown-skinned women occupied executive suites, and how she helped to usher to fruition shows like The Mindy Project, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Bates Motel, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and Master of None, all before even coming to Netflix in November of 2016 and helping to launch breakout hits there like the Queer Eye reboot, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, Unorthodox, and Lupin. How her portfolio at Netflix has evolved from unscripted shows and licensing and co-production deals to non-English language programming to what it is today, namely overseeing English language and non-English language original series, scripted and unscripted series, and limited series, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Bella, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Great to see you. And on this one, we always begin truly at the beginning. Could you please share for our listeners, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, that's very much the beginning. So I was born in London and I lived my, where my family's Indian, but from East Africa. So I was born in London, lived in Zambia, and then moved to Los Angeles when I was nine. And my family moved to America because it was American dream, American opportunity at that time, late seventies. And my family opened and still runs car washes. Yes. And, uh, from what I was able to 
to gather prepping for this, it seems like you were actually a few years after your parents and coming to the States. What was going on? They were sort of establishing it and you were staying in London? Yeah. So they went to, so they went to Los Angeles. They went to America first. They didn't know anybody in LA and they kind of said, okay, we're going to go and see what it is and get settled. And then we'll send for you. Cause I was four at that time. And I lived with my, and they left me with my grandparents who were amazing. And so it was an amazing time, except then I couldn't get a visa to come. And so they were in that situation. If they came back to London, then they couldn't get back into America. And the government didn't want to give me a visa because if I came with a visa, then they were right. They were right. I wasn't going to also come back, right? And so then for about three to four years, I was with my grandparents, but couldn't see my parents. And I guess at at such a young age, did you kind of even fully grasp what was going on around you or did, or, you know, how did that affect you? You know, it's so interesting. I think as an adult, I go, okay, what, what happened? Am I affected in some way? My mom and I talk about it all the time because I have three kids and the idea to leave your child. But again, my parents, as many, many people have done throughout history, right? When you're trying to make a better life for your family and sacrifice, what are those sacrifices you make? In this situation, to be honest, I was, my mom is the oldest of five. So I was the first grandchild living with my grandparents with all of my aunts and uncles because they were all not married yet. And so I was completely loved and spoiled and taken care of. So I don't remember, I remember being amazing, to be honest. I do remember always saying, because if you remember back then, phone calls were expensive right? There was no FaceTime. I wasn't seeing, it was very rare that I would speak to my parents, but I knew a one day I was going to see them. But to be honest, by the time I came to America, it was exciting because it finally happened. I remember I had this dress and everybody was like, that's your lucky dress. You got a visa. (laughs) Um, and, but when I went, I missed my grandparents in my life because I had you know, that, so it was this interesting time. And then my grandparents actually, that my parents brought them over and then I ended up with everybody together, which was amazing. But it always reminds me of, you know, sacrifices that so many families and immigrants make all around the world, um, to, to have a better life. And that's what my, they came here to America for opportunity. Why do you think they chose Los Angeles as the place to settle? It's actually very specific of why they did. So the only people they knew in the United States, so back then a lot of Indians went to the East Coast, right? New Jersey, New York. And then my dad had a best friend that he grew up in Africa with that lived in San Francisco. And my dad only wanted to live in Los Angeles because he loved living in Tanzania where he grew up and he grew up by the ocean and he grew up with amazing climate and he wanted, and he loved it, and he wanted to recreate that. And Los Angeles was the closest to recreating climate and lifestyle that he had in Tanzania. Love it. And that's well, very specific. And, and by the way, he wanted to also open car washes, which absolutely makes business sense in Los Angeles. Totally. So you show up at nine, like you said. How did you acclimate, and how did Americans acclimate? to you as you've I know you've talked about like not only are you a brown-skinned girl coming to pretty white Los Angeles but you're also speaking with a British accent yes it was so 
I had just left this family of my grandparents and aunt and uncles who raised me. I had to move to America to meet my parents after all these years and meet my sister I'd never met because she was born here. And my brother was also here at that time. So I already had a big transition happening. And then I, you know, go to school, which is third grade. And I had this British accent. I'm a brown Indian kid. And in London, even there was definitely racism against Indians for sure. There were a lot of Indian people. And so in America, people did not know at all what an Indian, like there was just no frame of reference. They didn't know what it was. So it felt extra weird. And I had a British accent. And so those were two very weird things at nine years old to have, which you cannot have. You can have one weird thing maybe, but you definitely cannot have two. (laughs) And so I went home every day and watched TV to learn the accent, to like, you know, just figure out the American accent, but also to learn about American culture. Because I didn't just know American families, American culture. I just didn't know anything about it. And so television really was where I found, you know, those two things. And by the way, what you can do it almost, I was always like nine and a half. Like what you could do at that age is amazing. In eight or 10 weeks, I had never had a trace of a British accent. And I (laughs) never have since then. I can't even... I can't even fake it. It's like so deeply buried in there that it's just gone. Well, I I have to ask, what were you watching at that point? Do you remember the shows that that kind of introduced you to America? Yes, I do. Um, First, I will say, I wish somebody had told me then that a British accent would be really great as you get older (laughs) and how you'd start sound so much smarter. So I wish somebody had told me that back then. Um, I did. You know, I watched... I watched... I Dream of Jeannie and Bewitched and the Brady Bunch. And then kind of as a family watched more like Dallas and Dynasty and Falcon Crest. Like, you know, again, in a good Indian family, big soapy (laughs) multi-generational shows that you can watch. But I did go home and watch a lot of those. I think that was really the staple, like Brady Bunch, I Dream of Jeannie and Bewitched. And then... Some Gomer Pyle, I remember. <laughs> that was my after-school viewing. Nice. Well, like Jewish families, including mine, I know that uh, many Indian families there there are strong expect high expectations academically, and that you will go on to a di- you know uh, education beyond high school. All of this. It seems like though somewhere along the line, I guess right after graduating high school. You veered from that traditional path and wound up, I'm going to brag for you here, Miss India USA 1991 and among other many other uh, pageants. Uh, But this was very different than what probably would have been expected of most young girls in your situation, right? Yes, it was, you know, it was an interesting time. So I'd, I'd say for me, I had really always push back and questioned a lot of the traditional gender norms as an Indian girl and, you know, the expectations of what you could and couldn't do. And so many things since I was young, I really pushed back on and questioned and, and, you know, which leads me ultimately to an unconventional career, but I really did question a lot of those things. 
at that age when, which was a very unexpected thing actually for me to do um, the Miss India pageant, you know, friends, family friends had recommended it. It was something that I never, ever thought I would ever do or consider. And I really was curious about my culture kind of on my own terms. And a very interesting thing happened during that time because I, you know, I ended up doing Miss India USA and then I, and I, and then I won Miss India Universe in 1991 also. But what was interesting during that time is I met Indian girls from all over the world, all dealing with like Indian girls who lived in all, in many different countries, all dealing with this push-pull of two different cultures, holding on to this Indian culture and everything that it represented, and then the country they were living in. My case, the U.S. and individuality versus the group, and there was very push-pull between East and West. And it was something that I ended up doing, and something that I ended up really meeting these amazing young women from around the world. And it was interesting because I never had any aspirations to be on camera, which many of them did. I really found my own Indianness on my own terms at that time. And were you doing some, I, I, I think there was some kind of like nonprofit work at the same time? I was. So I ran a nonprofit. Um, it was in New York for many, many years. And I did the LA chapter because it was raising money for disabled kids in third world countries. And so I wanted to because I really early on had this, you know, I wanted to really be in sort of nonprofit and, and, and that was important to me. And my, my mom is very involved in that. And I grew up with, with a lot of work in that, in that space in my family. Um, and so I had done that kind of at, at the same time as during that, that period, but it was very interesting. And I think in retrospect, amazing in my career and growth, because that's, I think, when I really, what all came together to me that I don't have to be Indian or American, that the superpower is really both and taking the best of both and the push-pull, I kind of really combined those two, which I think ultimately helped me career-wise and in work and looking at material and all of that. So it was actually a very, um, actually formative time when it came to really embracing kind of my culture on my own terms. So you go off to eventually to uh, Cal State uh, Long Beach, graduate, mm -hmm. I, I see in 95. What did you think at that moment your future was going to look like? Did you have a, uh, you know, what was your major? What was your idea of what your life was going to be? You know, I wanted to be like, I had this thing. I wanted to be in entertainment. Like I had the nonprofit and I was figured, okay, so I would do this. And I was, I was aware enough that was in it. That was a good time for me to do it. I had right the right platform to, to raise money and do this nonprofit, but I wanted to be in the entertainment industry and I didn't know anything <laughs> about it and really what that meant. But I always loved the idea of storytelling, that all these people were watching this thing at the same time. And I always found that a very powerful thing, that all everybody was watching this story at the same time, whether it was, you know, in a theater or on TV, and that shared experience. And I never wanted to be, nor do I have any skill to be a writer, actor, director, or anything like that. But I admire writers so much and always had this admiration for storytelling in that way. And so I definitely knew like, oh, I'm going to, I want to be like, that's the job. I'm going to go be in the entertainment industry, but I didn't really know what I was, you know, I figured I would be as closest to producing because the idea of putting lots of pieces together and where kind of creative meets business and strategy. I feel like I was, I could do that. 
And I just, you know, at that time, because it was a long time ago, I wrote general asking for a general meeting, informational meeting um, from the Hollywood Creative Directory, because mm-hmm. that was, you know. <laughs> For you, p- people who don't know, it was basically the phone book, right? Of the the yellow pa- the white page, the yellow pages of the um, entertainment industry, and I just basically asked for general informational meetings, and that's how it kind of first started. Now, just just because this is something that I'm sure is occurring to people listening, was there anyone who you were aware of who? looked like you who was in the business as an executive or whatever you imagined you were going to be doing? Oh, definitely not. I mean, there was no to be, and that was the thing even with family and community. And I was very part of the big Indian extended community, you know, in, in Los Angeles and that, and I was really, and I wasn't even born here, but really the first generation growing up here in so many ways that most of my peers, right, were doctors and, and lawyers and, and lots of respectable professional things, stability, expectations, security. And I was really going to go down this unconventional path, which was scary even for my parents, because what does that even mean? And how can you go? There is no, nobody, there are no Indian, nobody who's done it, right? I mean, the executive path, no. And even a little bit, obviously, on the creative side, but this was 25 years ago, so not in Hollywood. Um, so it was a very unconventional path. My dad had said when I was younger many times, right, you can be anything, right? There are no limitations, and I believed him. But then when I wanted to do entertainment, he was a bit like, wait, what, what is that? Okay. I'm not sure that's what I meant, but he really did sort of, so I never, it never occurred to me that somebody hadn't done it or I couldn't do it in that way. So it was a very unconventional path, but I just was driven by this thing inside that I knew I was very passionate about storytelling and, and, and being in an entertainment industry. So you get, I believe it's two responses to however many letters you send out. Talk about how you, uh, how you wound up at CBS, which is not a, no small thing, but I mean, I, it's, I think it, from what I've heard, you know, the way you've described it, the, the, um, you know, it was even, even at an entry level job at, at CBS, it was a fight to a polite fight, but a, a, a fight to get in the door. So I wrote hundreds of letters and I did get a call back at TriStar Pictures and CBS, um, the network entertainment. And when I went in and it started as, you know, these things do, it was a informational with somebody in the story department. And she said, we're not hiring, but there's an executive who works in TV movies and miniseries who's had a temp for a year. So if you could convince her, <laughs> she hasn't hired anybody in a year, but if you could convince her, she does need somebody at some point. And if you think back then in 1996, there was 65 TV movies and miniseries a year. So it was so much volume because it was three movie nights at that time. Because at that time, it was before Survivor and before CSNI and before CBS had CSI, before they had that. And... I met with this executive and I interviewed with her five times and I did an 
10, 12 page written essay application test. Um, And she still wasn't sure. And then I just said, look, you've had a temp for a year. It, I, it just, I'm just like a tech. Like, if you don't like me, then we can just do a trial period for like a month. And then it's just like having a temp anyways. So just at this point, you might as well give me a shot. And then she did. Now, I think it's interesting, like that, first of all, who's Nancy Tellum? So Nancy Tellum was the, what was her official title? Chairman of CBS Entertainment. So Les was, Right, CEO, she was chairman. She'd come from Warner Brothers because they worked closely at Warner Brothers. And she was the chairman of CBS Entertainment during that time, not really in the beginning, because I, when I was there, Les was still president of entertainment. So after a few years, she came in and then she became chairman. And was she somebody that kind of took a, an interest in you? You know, I'd say definitely she was a really amazing female executive role model and was just really direct and supportive and kind of took an interest because at that point, like a few years later, I got promoted to running the department, right? It was she and Les who who gave me the opportunity. But yeah, she was really a mentor early on. And wh- how did you calculate? Because I mean, unfortunately, as as we now see the the end game or the end result of of today, TV movies were not long for this world. You know, there there are a few, including Netflix has got a, I believe, a nominee this year for for uh, best TV movie. But they're they're not what they once were generally. So, what made you uh, kind of change lanes? So, you know, when I got into them in 1996, right, they were very much, right, they were very core to a lot of networks lineup. And so I thought it was amazing learning experience in retrospect. First of all, I was just getting in the door. At that point, I just wanted to get in the door. And it was amazing experience because of the volume of things we actually made. And a lot of those movies from true rights, like life stories, big books adaptation, and then mini series of big scope and scale. So I love to see the return of the limited series and everybody loves them so much, but those were right in that, in that vein back then. And so I thought in retrospect, it turned out to be amazing learning experience of that much production of making that many things and, and, and understanding how to, how to get things on the air in that way. And then I had done it, you know, for quite a while and I wanted to go to series, but I really wanted to go to the studio. And so that's when I pitched if I could go to CBS TV studios and start the cable studio because I really believed, right, it was going to be a growing business of making cable TV shows, right, series for more cable networks and there was more cable networks getting into the original programming And that was my switch into really wanting to go on the studio side, which I'd always wanted to, when I got into the business, my dream was to run a TV studio. That was the goal. And that was my, to do that. And then I was really interested in cable programming. Can can you just break down for, if there's somebody listening who is unclear about the distinction between, let's say, CBS and CBS TV studios, or as will come up in a moment, you know, universal television versus NBC, which may share a parent company, but it's its own thing. Like, can you explain how these things work in relation to each other? Yes. So there's the network 
which is, you know, the buyer in many ways, which is, you know, so NBC, the network, CBS, the network. And then there's this studio piece, right? Whether that's Warner Brothers or Universal that has deals with writers, infrastructure of actually the studio of actually making the shows, putting projects together, and then you sell it to one of these networks, right? So you sell it to CBS or you sell it to NBC or you sell it to Netflix. Um, and so the studio side is closer, I'd say, to right producing or more hands-on, working closer with the writers because you're actually putting projects together. And I was always very interested in that part because I love, you know, I have such admiration for writers and creators and storytellers. And I really wanted to learn how to actually be closer to making shows. And I was always interested in how do you find the right home for a show? Like where, where would you, where should you advocate for a writer in a show and, and be able to sell it? And so for me, the interesting part it was great having experience at the network side basic to learn in the network job and to learn linear and programming and having dealing with ratings every morning. There's so much to that business, which is amazing discipline and rigor to learn from it. But I always wanted to kind of early on when I was, when I, when I got in the business, I always wanted to actually be on the studio side and run a studio. So I guess one of the minis that you'd worked on i guess i believe it was a mini was elvis and yes. this connects the dot to universal which was your next job i guess starting in 2011 can you explain how you wind up at universal in a very different uh kind of capacity yeah. So when I ran movies and miniseries bob greenblatt had you know was a producer at that time with greenblatt Genelari. He had the rights to Elvis's estate and wanted to do a miniseries. He and I worked on that. He sold that to me. We, you know, Jonathan Reese Meyer starred in it. It was an amazing experience. Got nominated for, for best um, mini at that time. You know, we built, we had a great working relationship. Interestingly, then he went to Showtime though. And I was at CBS TV Studios where I you know, started building the cable studio and finding projects to sell to him at Showtime. So I knew him when he was a producer making all this for me. And then I knew him when he was at Showtime and I was selling him shows there. So when he went, when Comcast bought NBC Universal and he went to run it, you know, he called me and said, you have all this experience making movies and miniseries, so much production experience and the volume that I, you know, handled from the beginning to the end. And you had all this, you know, um, these great projects you brought me at Showtime, I want to start, you know, I want you to come over and run this studio. And so it was an amazing opportunity. And we had, you know, a great history together in different jobs with each other. But he, he'd asked me to come and run Universal Television. And just to note this, I guess, at that moment makes you the first woman of color ever to run a studio in Hollywood period. Uh, yes. Was yeah. that something that was sort of acknowledged and appreciated in, in the moment or has that only been kind of no no <laughs> no I think that's no I think that has come with some just time you know what is what's always interesting I think in, in even in my career job is that you know I was pursuing my right dream and career and livelihood and passion and then one day you wake up and some young Indian kids reach out to you and say, you know, I did this because you did this or because you did this. I saw, and it's so amazing. And 
then you feel, which I did, right, a sense of responsibility of what that means and making sure that, right, I'm helping and, and, and doing those things where I didn't have that sort of community. I didn't have the, if you can see it, you can be it, right? And if that, that was sort of part of it. And so when that happened, that wasn't even, I don't think anybody was, right? We weren't checking it. That wasn't even a thing. And I think it was, Maybe a couple of years after somebody asked and it somewhere came up of when they looked at all the major Hollywood studios and the TV studios, I think trying to look at, is it the first woman of color? Is it the first person of color? And that was sort of becoming like kind of that. So it became sort of the footnote later on. But I think amazing, honestly, just because, you know, once there's a first, then every, there's 50 others. Well, in your Five, just just under five years, I guess there. Um, let's note, this is your watch, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which winds up going to Fox, Bates Motel for A&E, Mindy Project for Hulu, which I know is a particular passion project for you. Anything you, you know, I, I guess I'd, I'd be curious to know what you're proudest of uh, during your time there. And then also, if you ever would have imagined that the fact that, I mean, from what I gather, the only reason that that chapter ever ended was because you were doing so many good shows for other people that I guess NBC <laughs> got, got a little jealous. Um, that, you know, there was so much amazing work that happened there, you know, to, to what an incredible opportunity to, you know, and I think people don't remember during this time, the studio had been collapsed and shut down. There wasn't really an independent studio. It was kind of NBC in-house. And to come in and rebuild Universal, I hired every single right person. There weren't, there wasn't, there weren't employees at the studio. And, and building that and getting to have this amazing legacy brand of Universal and then also having the most extraordinary comedy writers in the business because of still the lineage of that, of having Mike Shore there and Tina Fey and Robert Carlock and Mindy, who was writing on The Office, like having the opportunity to work with that level of comedy writers, right, was was really amazing. And even sort of then, right, Dick Wolf, been there forever. And that was really, you know, the first year that I was running the studio, Chicago Fire happened. Did the Chicago's live on, um, you know, to this day? So I think it was really... There was so much there that I was proud of. I'm so proud of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I was so proud of making Kimmy Schmidt and and moving it over to Netflix because, again, when I talk about when you have this amazing show where it can really thrive and and succeed and and live, and and I thought that was amazing. Master of None in so many ways and the Parents episode was so meaningful to me personally to even just be able to champion that show and have that on Netflix. Um, so there were so many things, Superstore. I mean, there's so many things that, you know, what's amazing about our jobs, even though it's very difficult at some point to get fired and you feel like you're leaving these things you've cared about so much. And it's so gratifying because they live on and they're out there and people are enjoying them and they continue, right, to sort of live on in that way. Um, Mindy Project, I have talked about of how, what that represented because, it really represented the first year of the studio where many people were saying, oh, everybody says they're going to sell outside, but they never do. Like, you're not going to really do it. And I was like, no, we're going to do what's right for the business. We will sell the right show somewhere else if that 
makes sense. And Mindy Project, you know, got picked up by Fox the first year um, at the studio. And that really represented that our studio would sell amazing things and great creators to other networks. And I'd say, you know, Cherry on Top, it was a Indian woman who wrote, created, produced, and starred in her show and her first show. And so that's just, you know, it's an, inc- it represents so much to me. So I guess you mentioned Kimmy Schmidt and Master of None and, and how those both wound up at Netflix. Was that what you think planted the seed with Ted Sarandos that when you became a free agent, all right, this is somebody we want to <laughs> bring over, even if it was at that point initially, maybe just due to whatever was, you know, whatever was open that he could bring you, ask you to come over as areas that you had nothing you you've said I have no background in unscripted. I have no background in licensing deals in particular, um, which is, I guess, what he initially asked you to come for. But what did this even you know, the fact that there was a conversation, was that because you guys had gotten to know each other through these prior uh, transactions? Yeah, I think, you know, we had you know, we've made shows together. We have the relationship between the studio and Netflix. We had a great working relationship and success together and, you know, multiple seasons. So, you know, we did, we knew each other and, you know, he had, you know, always said like, if you're going to go do, you know, before you go figure out what you're going to do, you know, please come, you know, let's have a conversation. And, you know, I always admired and respected him so much. He's, you know, so smart and so strategic, but also what I love about him is he's a fan of television. Like he really enjoys and appreciates. He's not jaded about it. He's not cynical. He he appreciates and loves as a fan of television, which is really important when you're doing these jobs. Like you have to love, I mean, this is so exciting. You get to make television in this way. And I met with him and he did offer me this job to start the unscripted division, do co-licensing and run all and run all the licensing. And I said on all of those things, except the co-production, which I was like, I know how to do that on overseeing licensing and unscripted. I said, you know, I'm out of all the things I've done. I have never done those things. And he said, Oh, I don't care. I just hire smart people and you'll figure it out. And you know, it was an interesting time because I had always wanted to run a studio and then I had, and it was amazing. And I loved it. And I loved the experience and the people I worked with. So in a way it was scary of what's next. And then in a way it was liberating. Cause I felt like, you know what? I always have this curiosity to learn another thing. And I figured, you know, I work in television unscripted is such an important part of that. Audiences love it. And it was such an important thing to go learn and licensing, I always figured, you know, running a studio, licensing and understanding that is so important to actually that job. And I just thought all of these things were interesting. Netflix was such an amazing dynamic company. And I wanted to learn streaming, like for real, not from selling from the outside, but actually to be on the inside. And I was really at the like, I should go learn something new. And it's a challenge. And, and I said, yes. Yeah. And we'll just say in that I, relatively brief period where that was your portfolio. Uh, Queer Eye rebooted. I'm tidying up with Marie Kondo. Nailed it. Um, script, unscripted became a, a big thing. It's only continued to grow at at Netflix, I know. But in some ways, the, the, the job that you had next makes a lot more sense for when you think about the story that we've been talking about, where <laughs> a person with 
London and Zambia and all India and all of these kind yeah. of international um, connections and interests. How did it's the next thing, I guess, is VP local language originals, meaning when we say local language, not English language, right? Not English language. Yes. So Ted had come to me and said, you know, this, th- we were expanding local language originals and right having shows in different countries in their own local language and how do we make these amazing shows with all of our members around the world and that was growing right our subscribers outside of the US and it was very important for people to see themselves and see their creators and their language and their shows and also get you know Hollywood content and and others and he really wanted to expand it and and grow those teams and those shows right we're going to have definitely a certain scale and production value and really be amazing quality because there's great storytellers. So he said, you know, this is a really important part of the business and I'd like you to do it. And, you know, it was interesting because I wasn't looking to go do really a job that is predominantly outside, you know, it's outside of the U.S. in that way. And it's just a different thing to learn. But I had always this piece that I always felt of the world a little bit more, right? Connected to growing up watching Indian things in my family and just sort of having this interest in so many other countries and other storytelling and recognizing, always knowing there was amazing storytelling from other places. And then I thought to myself, well, I always liked (laughs) to learn something new. And I felt like it was such an important growth, part of the growth in the company. And I knew from inside Netflix, which is different than traditional U.S. companies of what international means or stuff outside U.S. We were selling English content and you're, you know, exporting it. I knew in Netflix the growth, the importance of expanding the storytelling and what that meant was so important to the business. And so again, I said, okay, let's, um, you know, I, I'm going to go learn this. And it wasn't, you know, I have to say I absolutely fell in love with it. Well, I, I guess maybe I'm, maybe there's a marker that I'm missing here, but it seems like Netflix's interest in non-English language content may have started around 2015 and 15. right with Narcos, I guess, yeah. then Okja 2017, Roma big time 2018, almost won the Best Picture Oscar. Um, but I guess, can you just describe for somebody who's trying to picture how big of an operation and a presence Netflix is, how many countries around the world is Netflix streamed in? And then also how many countries around the world does Netflix have personnel in? So- we're okay, so there. Okay, so I'm going to break this down in a different way. So there's we're in 190 countries that were streamed in. We now roughly right 60 percent of our members are outside of the U.S. and I think people sometimes forget that part. And we have country offices like local teams making local shows. We have 26 local country countries right country teams local teams. And we make original series in 40 different countries. So that's like we hear Netflix Korea is creating Squid Game under your oversight, but they have a certain amount of autonomy, just like any however many other countries. Yes. So there's 
a team in Seoul and a team in Mumbai and a team in Paris and a team in Sao Paulo. And there's teams all around the world that make, because when you really think about making authentic, great shows is you need very experienced production people and creative executives who speak the language, who are from the creative community. They know who the writers are. They live and work in that. And to be very local is very important to us. And I think sometimes people think we make global shows. And I would say we don't want global shows. We want local and authentic shows that we then put on a global platform. But the things that are the most global are actually the most local and the most specific. And so that's why to make very locally specific, authentic shows has to really be on the ground with expertise and language in those countries. And what I think has been amazing to see is that, you know, when you talk about this of different, you know, it's who gets to tell these stories on a global scale. And there used to be a time traditionally where Hollywood always exported stories and Hollywood makes amazing series and movies and will always continue to export them. But now you are seeing many very talented creators, writers, directors, actors telling their stories from all parts of the world that now have a global platform. So we know the examples, I think, of projects from outside of America that have become international phenomena for you guys. I'll just mention a few that I think will probably ring a bell for people. Money Heist starting in 2017 or La Casa de Papel. Um, Barbarians in Germany, Unorthodox, uh, which won the directing Emmy, Lupin, and of course Squid Game, which I'm going to ask you about more in a second. But I guess on average, given that you have so much going on around the world, how do the local productions generally perform with their local audiences. And what I mean by that is I'm a big sort of student fan or, or, you know, just great interest in Hollywood history. And I find that it was interesting after World War II, um, Hollywood productions where I guess basically there was a quota imposed in England where they said, you know, we're really going to cut down on the amount of Hollywood production here to hopefully boost our own industry. And in retaliation, Hollywood just pulled all their stuff from the from the English market. And they were very quickly back asking for Hollywood content because there wasn't a huge demand for homegrown product there. Obviously, you guys are not having to deal with exhibition of in theatrical exhibition in the way that that factored in there. But um, do you find that there is a great hunger from your statistics for this kind of content, or is it actually the exception when it blows up like like some of the examples I mentioned? So it's very, so I say there's a couple of different things. So one is that people in a country absolutely want to see their own stories, right? Their stories reflected in their language, in their culture and specificity of storytelling. So the local shows in those countries, in their own local countries that they're intended for do incredibly well. And people are very excited. It's the, you know, the stars they know, it's, you know, it's something very specific to them. And it's very much of the, you know, mirror reflected, which is a very powerful thing. And, and, and that's great to have. On Netflix as a global service, which is amazing to see, is that 
and and people like to oh I love to watch Spanish content so I also get to see that oh and I love my Hollywood films and series and I get that also oh and there's this great show from the UK and I also get that that people have right are very open to watching many different things and I'd say first of all there's amazing storytelling from all over the world secondly they have access you can scroll, you can watch Ozark and you can scroll right over and you can watch Squid Game, right? And you can scroll over and you can watch Who Killed Sarah from Mexico. The access is there is if you have openness. So if you think about from 2019, 2021, 71% of U.S. members, right? There was a 71, there's 71% increase in watching non-English things, right? So an openness Either you heard maybe La Casa de Papel, Money Heist was great. Now you were going to watch it. And now there is an openness to do it. And so I think it's very important to always remember that the shows told in many different countries, very locally relevant, and you, that people also like to watch shows from different countries. Do you think it's a factor? I remember we had Lisa Nishimura on this podcast talking about back when it was, I think, primarily documentaries and comedy was her focus that you know, maybe you're not, if you're looking for, if you're interested in documentaries, maybe you wouldn't drive to a movie theater 40 miles away to go see a documentary, but that doesn't mean you're not, and that wouldn't be what you go to on, you know, opening weekend or a Friday night, but that doesn't mean there's not the interest. And with you guys, the barrier for entry is so much uh, easier. You just put it on. Like, do you think there's always been this kind of, uh, openness to this kind of content if if it was easily accessible and i mean one of the things i think you've also done to make it more easily accessible you guys i think spend quite a bit of money subtitling in a lot of languages dubbing in a lot of languages can you just talk about how like has it surprised you that there's been that kind of a surge that you're talking about where 71 percent of people are doing this so i Look, I think definitely we subtitle in 37 languages and we dub in 34 languages. And, you know, Netflix as a service has made the access right there. So if you're interested, it's very easy, right? To your point, no barrier of entry. You're not driving into a movie theater. You're not driving miles. You really from your home can discover storytelling from many places. And I always think that has been there in most of the world because much of the world outside of the U.S. or outside of English language speaking countries have watched dub content for a long time. They have watched other countries' content for a long time. So there was always this openness of just great storytelling. And so I think that has been there. And I think the one thing is that we have to remember these local stories that they may be very local, but those themes and things are very universal and they can connect with people. I think you could even look at something like uh, in English, like Never Have I Ever, another show Mindy and, I, Mindy and I did together on Netflix, though. It's so specific to an Indian American experience, and it resonates with people all over the world because you don't have to be Indian to obviously get it. And just, again, that shows specificity and how that really connects with people. And I think people, because human beings, right, in the end of the day, right, these are very universal themes you know, are moved by that. And we've seen that, right, with Parasite, and we've seen that with Roma, and you've seen that, you know, in other places in, in film, and now it's really happening, you see that with K-pop. You've seen it happen in different ways, and now it has really happened with series. 
And Squid Game, the biggest for sure of that, but also it's been happening for, you pointed out those other ones, you know, through the years of discovering this amazing storytelling. I mean, unorthodox is mostly in Yiddish. Right. I mean, by, by you know, by a lot. Yeah. And it's a very specific, very specific story. Yeah. No, I think, um, and there's so many other examples I could, could have brought up here that, um, you know, happened under your watch. And I know that your focus broadened in, 2020, I guess maybe it was during the pandemic or right before the pandemic to during, during, during <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, to this new position, VP uh, Global TV, which is obviously uh, uh, basically everything rather than, you know, just the local language that of before. But when along the line did Squid Game first even cross your radar in, in some form? And would you ever have imagined when it did that it had the potential to do what it's done? So it, so it's interesting. So I had, right, I was doing, I was overseeing everything outside of the U.S. and I had already done licensing and unscripted in the U.S. So when I just, when I put in the U.S. scripted part of the job to make it global, the interesting thing was at that point, I said to Ted, the U.S. scripted part is the first job you've offered me. I actually know how to do and I have experience doing. Um, but I'd also done sort of the other pieces. And so it was great to have the one look at all of, you know, television in this way. Um, Squid Game. So when I meet with all the teams, you know, around the world and I meet with the content teams, and we really look at the slate ahead and, you know, big things or to strategy of what kinds of shows and, and what they have and what they're excited about or what we don't have and, you know, what, what kinds of things we should be doing. And early on, they had said that director Wong had had the script and, you know, they were doing it as a series and they were very, you know, bullish on it. And very early on, we always knew because each country and each region has their tent poles, right? They know the big shows in their country. And, the goal really is to be very big in their country and it could be regionally things sort of travel. And then sometimes they really break through in a big, in, in a bigger way. And squid game was always a tentpole in Korea and always a tentpole. We figured in Asia because a lot of the K dramas and Korean shows travel all through Asia and Southeast Asia. And so we always knew that, right. That was always one that was, was, was signaling that there, I would love to say that I saw it coming, but I feel like sometimes when nothing, when it, something has never happened in the history of entertainment or the world in that way, that you can't sort of see that coming. And what was really amazing also about it, we all thought it was amazing and great, right? It really resonated. It was so original, but emotional. And it was propulsive, but I, it had this memorable iconography at the same time woven in with the most nuanced character. So it was special, definitely. But I thought what was really exciting and interesting to see was that it was, or, was organic fandom that grew that show. It was fans and members who watched and shared on TikTok and memes and social media and really shared the show. And that's really where it started growing and pierced this cultural zeitgeist kind of in the way that it did. So in your view, I mean, just first of all, can you contextualize, can you give people some idea when we say this is the biggest show in the history of Netflix, like what that actually means in terms of hours or numbers or whatever, but also why, like, 
do you? I'm sure you guys must do the same way that you do algorithms to try to use an algorithm to try to figure out what people might like to some degree. What's the what's the uh, postmortem here of why it did take off in the way that it did? So when we say big, so it was. So we have 94 countries that have top 10 lists, right? So it was in all of those 94 countries. And if you want to talk about view hours, which might give people some context, it was, it had 1.65 billion hours viewed in the first month. So 1.65 billion hours viewed in the first month. So that is enormous. And we don't use algorithm ever to decide what would work or could work. We'd go on judgment and gut and somebody hears a pitch because there's no way you could ever, would you believe, would you use, you, if you had an algorithm, you would never probably think a period show about a woman playing chess is a show that you should make. And it has to go with Scott Frank's an extraordinary writer and director. That's why you do that. Um, and then this was the same thing. It was just a, a script that really resonated with people. And what's interesting about Squid Game, it was a film script for 12 years that nobody made and it never got made. And this was the way to do it. So the show was, but you know what? I think, you know, it's just when the next amazing, like a show comes along that just really resonates with people and, this really did have, like, it was beautifully written and directed, exquisitely acted. The iconography was so memorable. It really talked about the economic inequality. And with such nuanced characters from all different backgrounds and what you would actually do, right, to survive. And, and what do you do in that way? And so I think there is just so much about that. And then wrapped with which with childhood games like red light green light which again made it you know easy maybe for people to connect to or associate with these very simple games kind of from childhood and i think it just had so many of those pieces that resonated with people in every country and with so many backgrounds and to me that is just amazing and i don't think you can really look back and go, was it this or that? I think we have to, it's to me, hats off to amazing original storytelling that connected with people. I think it's extraordinary that it's, you know, it's has all of the love it has here and then Emmy nominations, you know, even though it's a show in Korean that it's gotten, you know, cross borders that way. But I'm so glad it did because in the end of the day, that was supposed to be because it just connected with people, right? It took you on this journey of rise and it surprised you and it delighted you and it made you think and it was entertaining and it did all of those things. So it doesn't matter what language it's in, is it rose to the occasion of exquisitely made. So with our uh, remaining just few minutes here, I wonder if I can just get your kind of rapid fire questions and answers, just a few takes on different random things. Um, if the rights to the Oscars or the Emmys became available, would Netflix be interested in acquiring them? <laughs> um, I don't, you know, we're not, we're not traditionally like live immediate in that way with award shows. I would talk to the unscripted group and see if they really wanted to evaluate doing an awards show. But I think people have done them very well for a long time. And 
I don't, you know, I'm not sure sort of for our global audience in that way, immediacy on that night, if that's what we do, but we'd always look, always happy to have that we'll, conversation. We'll anticipate the next question, which is just general attitudes towards live television. I've heard, you know, rumblings that maybe sports would be a way into that for you guys. How close are we to seeing, you know, professional soccer or something else on Netflix? Um, Look, I think live is an interesting thing. And, and to be honest, you know, when, when we started Unscripted, you know, we did talk about live because there are things that, you know, voting or reunion shows, there are things that make sense for live uh, in the Unscripted space. So it's a little early days, but it is something that, you know, we do, you know, look at and go, oh, is there a great reason programming? You know, now we have, you know, many of these very successful dating shows and reunion shows. And so it does feel like a, you know, a, a capability at some point that makes sense to, to explore. On Wednesday, April 20th, there was a, uh, a rough day for stock of Netflix, uh, which had otherwise been great for a very long time. But I just wonder, um, yeah. that day, what was your honest reaction and has it changed the way you guys do anything? You know, I think it's, look, I've worked at a lot of different companies that have had, you know, it's hard to sort of just be growth, 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 rocket ship. And so I think, you know, my honest part of it are probably two things. One, it was very important for me to make sure to navigate the team through a very noisy period. It was very noisy externally. You know, people very, very much like to talk about Netflix. And it's amazing in a way because you're, your parents and your in-law and your doctor and your soccer coach and everybody wants to talk about Netflix, which is amazing because they love it and they feel like it's so much part of their lives, which is amazing. And then it's difficult in these times because everybody wants to talk about Netflix. So for me, to be honest, like my first instinct and really what I spent time was to make sure to navigate the teams through this noisy period. And two, it really was what I love is that the core of what we do is we have to make the best series and movies. We don't do anything else. There is no other thing we do in our business and we have to stay true to that. And when I talk to the teams and I'm like, look ahead at what we had coming up in the rest of the year, all around the world, by the way, and what we have in the following year and how exciting the slate is. And in the end of the day, we have to make great TV shows and great movies. And that's really what that focus on getting sort of really back to the, just really focusing on the creative and what we can do, which doesn't change. It just means we have to execute really well on what our mission has always been around the world. And so, you know, I think, look, and I think these difficult times and challenges in the company or any company can be good, right? It really makes you take stock, dig deep and, for me, it's who do you want to be as a leader during this time? How do you want to show up for our producers? How do you want to show up for creators? How do you want to show up for our audience and our members who love our shows? And what does that look like? And so I, I think it's, you know, to me, it's one of those things of like, it's not a bad thing. It can be a very good thing in a business to have to deal with a very hard thing like that and a very public thing. Because I think how you show up and who you are is, is it's, it's a good, it's a good you know, challenge, but I'm excited about around the world. Our slate for the rest of the year and next year is so exciting. There are so many great things coming up and that, you know, keeps me super excited. I don't need to tell you, you guys have more streaming competitors now than you ever had before. Uh, we see it just in 
so many different ways, including at the Emmys where there's now a zillion of these other places with stuff. If somebody is got a great, somebody's got a great idea, what is the best reason for them to take it to Netflix versus one of your competitors in 2022? So I think there's a lot of great people, a lot of great places that make great shows. And, you know, I'd say two things. One, we always want to be a great place to work for talent that they have a vision and that gets supported and realized. And I do think that is something we talk about and, you know, really aspire to every day. I'd say the second thing is when we make a very good, when we make a great show, the conversation and the cultural zeitgeist that Netflix can create or has on the platform to a global scale is something that uniquely we have been able to do. And just finally, is there anything you can tease about what you were just saying, you know, uh, exciting year or whatever ahead? Is there a country we should be on the lookout for as the next South Korea or, uh, you know, a project that could be your next Stranger Things or whatever? You know, just anything that you are especially excited about that you want to get some other people excited about? Oh, there's so many exciting things. Okay, I will do a quick rapid fire. So Queen Charlotte, very excited about. The Watcher from Ryan Murphy, very excited about. The Lying Life of Adults in Italy, based on Elena Ferrante's novel, is just exquisite. The Empress coming from Germany, so good. Um, oh my God, I could go on and on. There's so many good shows. But what I what I love and I'm excited about just seeing just amazing storytelling, you know, around the world. And late, late next year, we'll have the prequel to, uh, or the following soon, uh, the prequel to La Casa de Papel, which is Berlin, which I think will please many, many fans. So I just, you know, it's amazing to see. And again, for our members to get storytelling from all over the world with very easy access. And Squid Game too, eventually, right? And Squid Game too. Yes, the story is so good for this next season. How soon do you think it, it will be on the service? I don't, I don't know yet because, you know, uh, Director Wong is incredibly talented and incredibly thorough and very, he's going to do, you know, every breath of it. So it'll take a while, but it will definitely be worth it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for many thank you. great hours on Netflix. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.